Hello, beautiful humans. You bet it's new. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the first episode of the Billy Billy Broadcast. I will be sending out this podcast once a week, answering all of your most asked questions. It is a free-for-all. If you have any questions, send them to me on Instagram, or you can also send them to me on TikTok. All right, so for this edition, I did send out a video on TikTok about four days ago asking people to go crazy. Ask me anything you want under the sun, and you guys did not disappoint to the point where I had to put all of them into a randomizer because I could not in good conscience choose only a few. So let's get into it. Oof. And right off the bat, we've got a spicy one. What are your feelings on restoring antiques? Do you think they should be kept old looking? How far is too far? Oh, this is a huge debate. I'm originally from North Carolina. Uh, My family's in the furniture industry three generations back. Uh, My father restores antique furniture in our garage to this day. And as you guys well know, I restore uh, phonographs in my home. So how far is too far? I will say the Pure One Imports whitewashing uh, solid mahogany, I can't do it. I can't look at it. I can't in good conscience, like, take a bunch of paint and then, in my opinion, destroy something that I think is beautiful in its natural state. Now, that's not saying I go after people who do this or I'm angry with them for doing what they want with their own property. I just really appreciate the value of something made, you know, well. Uh, Things like that aren't made the same way anymore. Headboards, uh, wood furniture in general, seating, All that stuff I just feel needs to be kept as authentic as possible. Same with things like phonographs, record players, things like that. Reupholstering furniture, sure, why not? Uh, But dousing paint all over an object that was meant to be seen in a certain state, I find slightly disrespectful, but that's just me. Um, But like I said, if people are nice enough to go ahead and want to restore something that's just too far gone and make it something new and repurpose it, I am all for that because then at least it's still surviving. Maybe in a different state, but it's surviving. All right. Will I ever show photos of myself pre-back surgery? This is a hard one. There's a couple of reasons why I would. I would because I know there are other people out there like me who maybe feel alone and are like, there's no hope for me, or they're about to have the same surgery that I had, or maybe surgery is just not for them, and their doctors have said that they could have a good quality of life without it. It's a hard decision to make. Um, I think it would help people a little bit if if I was to put my pictures out there. The flip side to that, I spent most of my life getting ridiculed for the way I looked and uh, the differences in my body shape compared to other people's. And the internet is not a very kind place. I don't know if I would want to necessarily subject myself to that again. On top of that, I had my back surgery when I was 17. I was a minor. And all the pictures that you would see of me pre-back surgery would be between the ages of 11 and 17 is when it was very noticeable. And putting pictures of a minor, whether it be in the past or whatever, out into the internet is already just a super strange gray area that maybe I don't want to dive into. 
So I'll think about it. Maybe one day when I'm feeling, you know, mentally ready enough and have the spoons to feel like I could withstand the possible backlash I'd get for it. Sure. Maybe. All right. Next. Oh, well, we knew this would happen. <laughs> Questions about Pyrex. What is the oldest piece of Pyrex you've ever seen in person? Well, Pyrex as a company is not very old. You have to understand that the creators of Pyrex um, originally created borosilicate back in the late 1800s. And that material was used originally for the railway systems. Uh, you would put lenses, colored lenses, over top of flame-driven railroad lights. And those, I guess you could quote-unquote say, is Pyrex. Um, that particular type of borosilicate was called Nonex, and it contained a lot of lead. When they removed the lead, it became Pyrex. I would say the oldest piece of actual licensed, quote-unquote, Pyrex, as it was known on the market, would have to be the 1919 through 1924 serving sets. Those are the earliest we have as far as something released to the public for entertaining purposes. And I've, I've seen those in person quite a few times, mostly in people's private you know, collections in their homes, because pieces like that are usually a, a generational acquisition. You're going to get it from your grandma. You're going to get it from your great aunt. You're gonna, they would have gotten it from their mothers, and their mothers would have gotten it from their mothers. So seeing it in the wild is not as common. And when you do, usually the metal pieces uh, that used to hold the Pyrex inserts are rusted, bent, uh, have been repaired with subpar materials. And the Pyrex pieces, the inserts themselves, usually have a lot of chips and stuff like that. So the oldest piece I've seen in person and held with my own hands is going to be about 1919. Um, and that's as Pyrex known for home use. <laughs> I love this one. <laughs> this one sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I know they didn't mean it like that. But I get this question more than you know. And it's usually asked to me in person. So I find it funny that it's getting asked to me online. How do the people and experts in the Antiques Roadshow know about the things they know? And then there's like an addendum to that. Do they research beforehand? So this is two parts. Sorry for the super long answer, but here we go. <sighs> How do people in Antiques Roadshow know what they know? So Antiques Roadshow is an amazing get-together of, of experts, extreme experts on whatever niche subject uh, they're studying. These are usually people who are a lot like me in they grew up with the invested interest in whatever it is that they like, and it's like a special interest for them. Or uh, you've got these people who have gotten degrees in or doctorates even in these particular items mostly these doctorate degrees are in history uh, I know that on Antiques Roadshow there's a I can't remember her name off the top of my head but she's insane she has a master's in sports history and the Antiques Roadshow uses her primarily to date and appraise golf memorabilia so a lot of these people keep in mind are, like I just said, also appraisers. I don't consider myself an appraiser. I can sit here and tell you how much I might think it would sell for, but as far as hardcore data, market value, like numbers that I know it would sell for at, and here's here's the kicker here, 
auction. I can't give you that because auction houses by and large operate on a different wavelength as collector pricing. Now, collector pricing, yes. Can collectors go to auction houses and purchase things? Yes. But the difference between what a collector on eBay would buy something for and what someone at an auction house would buy it for, two completely different things. I can see a piece of Pyrex and go, yes, I think that that would probably sell on eBay around $50 to $100 just because I am on eBay three, four, seven, twelve times a day looking at these things and I know about how much people are selling them for. Is that the market worth slash value that it would go for at an auction house? Absolutely not, because things that go to auction are completely different that thing than things that sell on eBay. Of course there's always a Venn diagram overlap of about, say about 10% of items that you'd see on either one, but Things at an auction house are going to sell, depending on the item, usually less at an auction house than they would, say, on eBay. Moving on, do the people who go on Antiques Roadshow, meaning the professionals on Antiques Roadshow, go ahead and investigate the item they're about to talk about on live television um, before they see it? Yes and no. So when you go to an Antiques Roadshow, what happens is you are lined up like cattle and they herd you through and the volunteers who show up there for this usually will, it's either digital, which is the later versions, uh, but a slip of paper and they will describe your item. Then what will happen is those pieces of paper make it to pods. Of experts. You will have experts on pottery, on certain types of paintings. You will have experts on sports. You will have experts on, you know, writing experts who will look at signatures. And then it goes off to smaller pods. Uh, say it goes from the first person, then to uh, the ceramics pod, then to the Asian ceramics pod. And then maybe there'll be two or three experts in that smaller pod who will then usually take a look at that piece of paper and decide who it's best suited for. Then one of two things happens. Either they ask to see you um, and they can just shoot from the hip and guess about what it is or tell you they will know about what it is if from the piece of paper they could go ahead and and see it or they will ask to see the item before they speak to you and do a little bit of book research. Now keep in mind that these people have extreme databases of knowledge at their fingertips at any one given time. Uh, A lot of these people also have a nifty knack for dialing down extrapolated evidence of what an item might be, which is how I operate. Uh, I will see something and it is an if-then moment. If it looks like this, then it must be from blank. But if it has this logo, then that cannot be true. And so on and so forth until the item is nailed down to a date, um, a location, And how much they think it might be worth. So yeah, that was long-winded. But yes, they can go back and study a little bit. Are they learning something completely new when they are going to look at their, their databases? No. No, they're just using extrapolated data in their brain. 
um, and kind of reconfirming usually what they already know. Moving on. Do I have any pets? Yes, I have three lovely dogs. Um, I've got Zephyr. I've had him since he was five days old. He is my pit mix. We think we he's mixed with a birding spaniel breed of some sort. Um, then I have Flora, and she is all pity. She's super cute. She's a little cannonball. She weighs, oh God, 54 pounds, but she is dense and muscular. And then I have Iris, and she is my little black and tan deer-headed chihuahua. Um, Zephyr is nine, Iris is nine, Flora is four and a half, and I love them dearly. They are my fur children. Would Jack and Rose from the Titanic have fit on the door? (laughs) If you're a fan of Mythbusters, you know the answer to this. Yes, Rose is a selfish, selfish asshole. Um, Yes, they would have both fit on the door. Um, Do I think it would have been hard to both fit on the door? Yes. Were they in a state of absolute shock and trauma? Yes. Uh, So just let the movie be as it is. Jack dies. Rose lives a great life. So on and so forth. What did I do pre-COVID for a living? So pre-COVID, I did the same thing I do now. I am a logistics coordinator. Unfortunately, when COVID hit, I was laid off for a few months, then brought back on for a month, then laid off again um, in late June. And then I got hired at the current position I have now at a manufacturer um, in September. And I've been there ever since. It's a much better job anyway. But uh, what I do is our salespeople make sales and then they ask us for rates and then we find routes and we move the trucks. We call in drivers, our shipment department loads everything into the trucks and off it goes. So I play a giant game of Tetris all day, every day, and I love it. Am I familiar with the Mütter Museum? Yes, I live in Philadelphia and I'm also a member I love the Mütter Museum. It is one of my favorite places to go. I love anatomy. I love learning about the human body. Um, I love collecting things from the Victorian era, and most of the things in the collection come from the Victorian era. They also do a great job of respecting the donations to the Mütter. Uh, Most things from the Mütter are donated, and that is even correct for... They have uh, Chang and Ang, the... I hate this word, but Siamese twins liver uh chang and ang their bodies were donated to the mooder and everything you see there has been ethically sourced Uh, they have a new acquisition of somebody that had a bone disease where their bones grow into their muscles um and she donated her body before before she passed she's i think 50 something when she passed away and it took i think nine months for them to prepare her body for display, but it just went up and, and she's gorgeous. And I thank her deeply for her donation to medical science. They learned so much from her body and people will continue to learn more and more as more people donate their body to science. Also, if you're not an organ donor, please, please, on next time you update your driver's license, become an organ donor, you save lives that way. I mean, heck, you're not using your body parts anyway, so let somebody else live and you get to live on even longer, just in a different way. And if you can donate your body to science, make sure you sign up for the Mooder newsletter. They let you know how to every single time they send out an email. And that's where my body's going when I move on. 
I hope they can uh, display my spine. You can put requests in. And my request is, please display my spine. Because I have not found any other spine at the motor that has the same instrumentation as I do in my spine. And I think it would make people feel a lot better about their spinal conditions if they saw uh, what's going on inside of them. Um, I mean, I was fearful of what was going inside of me until someone showed me tons of people who had donated their bodies to science and had full articulated skeletons of what that looks like. And now I'm proud. I'm like, yes, I have titanium in my spine and I am technically a cyborg. Oh man, we're getting into some deep cuts here. If you had to give up your oddities collection or Pyrex collection... Which one would you give up if you were being threatened with something horrible? (laughs) My Pyrex collection, for sure. And that is because I give up my Pyrex collection, okay, and then what happens? I can replace all of those items eventually. Would it take a long time? Sure. But are there copies of items in the Pyrex collection? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there copies of the things that I own in my oddities collection. No, everything I have in my oddities collection by and large is one of a kind. Couldn't replace it. And the historical value, of course, is is absolutely priceless. So I would absolutely 100% right now at the drop of a hat if you were like, I'm going to do something terrible to you unless you give up one or the other. I'd be like, take the Pyrex. Just take the Pyrex. (laughs) My oddities collection is so much more valuable to me than my Pyrex collection. Ooh, I get this next one a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I I don't know how many times I have to repost the same answer, but I'll do it again here. Is modern Pyrex like antique Pyrex? I don't know the difference. Can you help? Okay, here we go. Antique Pyrex is technically anything before 1998. That doesn't mean vintage. That doesn't necessarily mean quote unquote antique. What I mean by that is, Pyrex before 1998 was made of borosilicate glass. That glass does very, very well under major temperature swings, also known as thermal shock. That means you can take it from the freezer to the oven, the fridge to the counter, the freezer to the fridge. You name it, you can move it around and it won't shatter unless it's something crazy. I think the only time I've seen Pyrex, old Pyrex, shatter is when it's placed on a stovetop. Pyrex does not is not meant to go over an open flame. Uh, that's why Pyrex created their flameware, which is made of aluminosilicate, and that can go directly over a flame. That's where their percolators are made out of, their frying pans are made out of, and their pots. Um, those can go over open flame, no problem at all. After 1998, Pyrex as a company was sold to the Corel Company, which, funny enough, also used to be a corning company but Corning and Corel split ways away before that about let's see uh, about 20 years before that so Corel was like eh, I think we can take it on they made a really big deal I forget how many millions of dollars went into that but Pyrex was sold to the Corel company and when the Corel company took it on everything that they were making was now being made of soda lime glass and the borosilicate just didn't fit with their new model and people were not buying Pyrex borosilicate casserole dishes at the rate that they had been before. The casserole boom was still raging, but people had already acquired massive amounts of antique Pyrex milk glassware. People weren't looking to buy new casserole dishes 
at nearly the rate they were before. Now the new thing they were aiming for was storage. So why spend more on borosilicate glass when you can just make Pyrex out of soda lime glass and have it used for storage? Can you still bake with it? Yeah, totally. But it doesn't have nearly the thermal shock value that borosilicate glass, i.e. pre-1998 Pyrex did before it. With the switch and Corel's acquisition of Pyrex, what they had to do, because the name was living on, but they needed to brand it differently, is they changed the logo. So I have a video on this on TikTok. You really feel like just going for it and uh, scrolling really far back. I'm talking months and months and months. Um, But I'll tell you here. The way you can tell the difference between antique, quote-unquote antique, so pre-1998 Pyrex, and post-1998 Pyrex is that logo. The newer logo is in all lowercase letters. It's all Pyrex, P-Y-R-E-X, in all lowercase letters. Before that time, it was all in capital letters, uppercase, and usually filled in if it's on a measuring cup, Um, all capital letters. And if you see, if you're just going through your thrift store say you're just looking at stuff and you spot what you think might be pyrex make sure to flip that sucker over uh, and make sure all of the letters are capitalized then you know you either have borosilicate or you have aluminosilicate now how you tell the difference between those two is anything made of aluminosilicate by pyrex ever is going to have a little flame on it sometimes with logs it's really cute <laughs> it's just a little flame a little fire and that means it's flameware and it can go over open flame but that also means you're not supposed to bake in it so choose wisely i hope that helped that's pretty this is about surface level as i can get for that i could go on for days and days and days about the differences between style culture uh, sales data why things changed what corel's doing now what corel did before just goes on forever. If you guys want a whole podcast on nothing but the timeline of the creators of Pyrex and Corel, which is Corning, Corning Glass Corporation, which then turned into Corning Glassworks, which then turned into, it just goes on and on. I'd be more than happy to go through a full timeline history of all of that. Moving on. What do you think of Fenton Glass? <sighs> love-hate relationship. So I did two videos on Fenton uh, and just carnival glass in general uh, a few months ago for my friend Chelsea and she is Hex in the City um, on on the TikToks. She is getting married and she got a big collection of Fenton glassware. And Fenton glass is rough. So I'll start by saying this. There are a lot of Chinese replications of Fenton glassware. And the major way you can tell the difference between Fenton and other imitators is usually the heavy, heavy glass bottoms. What the bottoms look like, if they have like a hatching pattern on them, they're usually genuine Fenton from back in the day. Uh, And then also the oil slick on them. Besides that, that doesn't always mean it's still Fenton. <laughs> the love-hate relationship honestly comes from the fact that it is so frustrating to date Fenton glassware. Um, making Carnival glass was so easy and so cheap that back in the day, the way it got its name, Carnival glass got its name, is that they it was so cheap to make that they would just hand this out as prizes at carnivals, parties, everything. It was just being literally handed out for free to people. And that's why the lower classes at the time were 
getting these items and how they were passed down so easily and why you see so much of it on the market right now is because people who you know earn less like to conserve their items so they're passing these things down to their kids and using them forever and Fenton they didn't really care they're just like we're making really cheap glass and it's selling like hotcakes we don't really need to make a name for ourselves except for you know we're a buy in bulk almost like the Costco of glass back then and they originally were putting stickers on all their stuff imagine that and then of course people would be like I need to wash the glass and they would wash the stickers off wasn't up until I think it was the 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s and 90s that Fenton started stamping the bottom of their items and it would be like Fenton in this beautiful filigree and then a number so be like Fenton 7 means Fenton glassware from the 70s Fenton 8 Fenton glassware from the 80s so on and so forth and it would just go on forever uh is Fenton still making stuff today technically uh, did they sell their stock off a long time ago? Yeah. So I love Fenton. I think it's beautiful. I love oil slick glass. I love deep ruby tones. I love Victorian era and Georgian era and industrial revolution era style glassware. But it's just dating it makes me want to throw things. <laughs> so Do I like to look at it? Yes. Do I like dating it? No. No, I don't. Who is my Smash Bros main? Kirby. I know I'm lame like that, but Kirby, all day, every day. You, you can't make me choose another player. I won't do it. Kirby. I've still got the N64 and everything. What person inside show history do you think doesn't get enough love? Lavinia Warren. Honestly, I know I did like three videos on her and I talked about how she was the queen and she was the queen of the sideshow for a very long time. She was absolutely royalty, but I will say that misogyny is real. And I mean this for her. Misogyny was a huge thing. Lavinia Warren, before she even became a sideshow actor, whatever you want to call her, performer, she didn't really perform. She was just who she was and was just fabulous doing it. She was a teacher. A teacher who taught just kids, general children, about everything. She's very talented in English and mathematics. Very science-minded human. And unlike a lot of people back in the day, specifically teachers, she taught everyone. She's well-known for liking to teach children of color. She would get so irate with people who would be sexist or racist and... Um, ableist she just wasn't there for it she was very ahead of her time mentally speaking as far as her views and morals go and I I love her for that but she was always billed as Tom Thumb's wife now why that irks me so much is like I said she she had a job before she signed on with P.T. Barnum when she was 21 she had a job she had life outside of the sideshows she knew both sides of the veil Whereas Tom Thumb was adopted as a young child by P.T. Barnum. And he's only ever known stardom and fame and had never had to work a typical job out in the quote-unquote real world before. And and for her, that was so odd. But also engaging, because mind you, she was dead set on, on marrying Tom Thumb. She loved him from the moment she saw him. She first saw him 
her form before she even met him. And she had gone to see him multiple times, was just enamored with him. And he was very educated, don't get me wrong, but he just didn't have the kind of empathy and compassion that she did or uh, public service status that she did. I mean, hell, Abe Lincoln loved her, loved her because she was so progressive and so smart. And, and people often would meet her and make the comment that she was otherworldly personality-wise. So stoic, calm, funny, intriguing. And yet she was billed as Tom Thumb and his wife. It even got so... So, okay, fine. Uh, decades go by. Unfortunately, Tom Thumb dies. And she gets remarried before her exit from the sideshow to live out her days uh, having her own little sideshow. And she gets married again. Now, mind you, this is after she's gotten all the accolades... All the recognition of being some very smart, intelligent, you know, just well put together worldly woman. She gets married to Primo Magri, who I love as well. He's a very interesting man. Super crazy chess player. Had a little bit of a temper on him. Just a weird guy, but very fun to, to learn about. And I have a cabinet card from when they got married. And I shit you not. It says Primo Magri and the Countess. Oh my God, can you just put her name? <laughs> like, and so, okay, fine. She lives out her days having her own sideshow and her own attraction on the side of the road with her husband. And they both live well into their 70s. She died, I think she was 77. She lived for a long ass time. Where is she buried? You guys guess before I even say it. Where is she buried? Next to Tom Thumb. I shit you not, her gravestone says... His wife. I shit you not. After all of that, after a life of decades of service to the public, performing and being a kick-ass person, her gravestone, her headstone, it's not even a headstone, it's a gravestone, it's in the ground. It's not even, like, erected. It's literally in the ground, and it says, his wife. Oh, my God. So, yeah, she definitely, for sure, 100%, as far as the discrepancy between the level of fame versus her recognition on paper... It's, a, it's an atrocity. She needs to be upheld as one of, one of the nation's key people on making a difference. Because she 100% did. She wasn't just a sideshow act. She made a huge difference in people's lives. And I love her dearly. And if I could go back in time and meet her, I would just, I, I would buy her anything she wanted. Coffee, tea, we would play checkers. I would attempt to play chess. And I just want to hear about everything. I would want to learn about everything and tell her what the future looks like. And I think she would be very happy with how far we've come. Do you think Bigfoot is real? Anything's possible, my man. Anything. <laughs> and here's why I say this. We know more about the moon than we know about the Mariana Trench. That's bad, you guys. <laughs> That's so bad. The Mariana's Trench, we can, we can go down to the Mariana's Trench. We literally, like, we can go down there right now. And, and discover things and we, we don't know what's down there we don't know what's down there so how the hell we don't we, we find new species we don't talk about it enough honestly we find new species of animal all of the time all of the time all of the time the amazonian rainforest is full of shit that we don't know about yet and so do i think bigfoot in its 
in the idea of Bigfoot as being some random ape-looking humanoid being that lives in the woods, do I think that that in itself is real? I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. Could it be? Maybe. Maybe. Every culture around the world seems to have its own Bigfoot story, but call it something different, you know? Uh, I mean, the South even has its own version of a quote-unquote Bigfoot called the skunk ape. And I grew up hearing that from my from my North Carolinian family uh, who lives up in Appalachia. And, that, yeah. Yeah. Like, maybe. Is Bigfoot real? Sure, why not? Anything's possible at this point. I mean, the, the world is weird. The planet we live on is super strange. And the faster you guys accept the fact that anything is possible, the better things will go. What is my favorite childhood memory? This is a twofer because I saw another question when I was typing them up. What got me interested in history and what's my favorite childhood memory? Those, those two things go hand in hand. My grandmother was a pawn shop owner. And a huge hoarder. And I did not like her. She's a bad person. And I, yeah, she was, she was a, she was a trip. But my favorite childhood memory actually has to do with her. And that is my grandmother would hoard such random items. She would dig and dig and dig through her hoard within her home or her secondary hoard, which was the second floor of her pawn store. And find something that she knew all about. But I, or she thought the family would know nothing about. She didn't have a lot of money. She always threw her money into collecting more things. So that's what we would get for Christmas. Every Christmas, I would see it under the tree. She would use the same bag every year. And I'd dig it out, and we would have 24 hours. 24 hours. And we could only use books <laughs> to discover what an item was. And we could only use, like I said, books or, you know, extrapolated data that we already had stuffed in our heads. And as a very young child, I didn't have a lot of data yet. So I would just start crunching facts. I would read and read and read all year long about the most random things. Uh, photography, uh, phonography, music, technology, um, industrialized items, things that used to be um, mechanical that are now electric, toys, little things, music boxes, lipstick cases and holders, uh, trends on disposable plastic items. The list goes on of the random crap I know because of my grandmother. And I relished in that every year. People in my family would get so irritated. They'd be like, Marjorie, what the hell is this? And she'd be like, that's the game. What the hell is that? And then she would just smile. And I'd be like, okay, game on. What the hell is this? As a child, you always want your grandparents to love you. So I was under a constant pressure of, of course, self-imposed. But all children want their family to love them. So I was like, if I discover what this item is, you know, we call her Mimal. Memo will be happy with me for about five seconds. And I was like, all right, game on, you, you angry, angry woman. It wasn't until I was about 12 or 13 that I really started buckling down and being like, I am going to solve this if it kills me. And now it wasn't because I wanted my grandmother to love me, but because it was just, 
I have to prove a point. Because as awful and as terrible as my grandmother was, she was so smart. So smart. She barely made it out of high school, but damn it, she knew so much about history and random things and consumerism and things that would show up out of nowhere. Just random crap she would find in somebody else's hoard. She'd pick it up and hold it out in her hand really flat and she'd go, what is it? I don't don't know, Mama. I don't know what it is. She'd get stern and super angry and shove it in my face again. What is it? I'd be like, I don't know. And she'd be like, well, you need to know. And then she would go on a rant, just a full out rant. This is a, this is a cube from a Kodak camera from blank, 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 and just go on and on and on. And it would, you could only use them four to five times and it came out in the sixties and you need to know these things. And I'd be like, why is she so adamant that I know these things? Like, why do I need to know these things? And now as an adult, I'm 29 now, I know why people are forgetting. People take for granted what they see around them and what they touch. Um, Nobody seems to understand that everything they touch, every little item that you buy at Target, every little thing you see around you has a history of why it looks the way it looks now and why it operates the way it operates now. And I find that fascinating. So when people say you're the Pyrex lady, I go, you know what? I now I accept it. Thank you. I feel so great that people value me for this this useless information I have just rolling around in my head about Pyrex. But I also have so much more rolling around in my head because my grandmother every Christmas would make us learn about the entire history of a thing we were holding but with no clues. And so when you have to do that, you learn a lot more info than you were ready to learn about. And so my whole family, because of my grandmother, is like that. We all have a huge drive to understand why something is the way it is. And when you get enough well-rounded knowledge about a certain item, you can then look at other related items and pull info from that bank in your head to form opinions or guesses about whatever you're looking at now. So yeah, my, my, my favorite childhood memory, funny enough, as horrible as she was, is about my grandma. <laughs> I'm going to do one more question. We're going to wrap this up. I have three sons. They are all on the spectrum. What should I know as a mom to help them transition into being adults? And what do you wish you would have known? Jesus. Okay. The fact that you acknowledge that your sons are autistic is already light years and leagues ahead of what I grew up with. And that gives me so much hope. My parents, even to this day, I haven't spoken to them in forever, but they do not acknowledge that I am neurodiverse in any way. Unfortunately, my parents are very into eugenics and the idea that their genes could produce what they say, something like me, um, is so beyond them. But the fact that you accept your sons already as they are without batting an eye and the fact that you want to know these things 
and you want them to grow up well-rounded, you are, anything you do from now is, I know you're going to be a good mom and you're going to do right by them. Personally, what do I wish I had known? That not everyone's going to like you and that's okay. Not everyone's going to understand you and that's okay. I, I may have meltdowns and people around me may be confused and make up ideas in their head about me um, because of the way I operate and the way my, my brain functions. And instead of trying to impress these people, realize that they're just people too. And maybe they don't know. Maybe they're curious. Maybe they're uncomfortable in not knowing. Give people the benefit of the doubt, even when they're being cruel. Just be kind. I know that sounds silly, but you can't control other people's actions. And I guess the best thing I would have realized early on is that I, 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 me, I need to be kind. But not at the risk of compromising myself. Be kind in knowing that the people who are being mean are probably struggling with something too. Yeah, what they're saying is hurtful and that doesn't make it right. And no, you don't need to compromise yourself or your safety or your feelings for them and lend a helping hand if you are not comfortable with that. But just being able to be at peace with the fact that you're not going to be everyone's favorite 24-7 is okay. And that is okay because the people that matter don't mind. They don't. And maybe that pool is small, but guess what? That pool is small for most people too. Something I wish I had known is that you don't need to make everyone happy because making yourself unhappy is not going to make the people who love you happy. If your main concern is making other people happy and that's something you really want to do, just make sure that the people who are making you happy are the ones that you are trying to make happy as well. What can you do for your sons to transition them into adulthood? Listen. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Sometimes things aren't needed. Advice is not always needed. Um, sometimes we just need to vent. Sometimes we just need to be frustrated. A lot of times we won't say what we're thinking because we don't want advice. Because a lot of times people's advice is, well, why don't you try it this way? We don't need advice. We already know what we're doing and we know what needs to be accomplished. Our brain is just fighting us and we're just like, okay, well, uh, I guess we're going to take a moment to breathe. And that's okay. Um, normally, giving advice just sends our brains back into overdrive because now we think we've upset you. And that's why you're giving us advice. Usually... Give advice when it's asked for. Otherwise, chill out. Assist. But most of all, listen. And most of all, continue what you're doing. Just love them for being them. And just be happy that you're doing better than at least one set of parents that you know about. And that's mine. All right, guys, that is the conclusion of the Billy Billy Broadcast episode one. We did it. Like I said, I'm going to be doing this once a week and answering questions that you guys leave me on TikTok. You can always drop one in the DMs of my Instagram and just make sure you preface it with, hey, can you talk about this on your podcast? I am going to be setting up a Patreon soon where you guys, if you sign up, can get exclusive 
over one minute videos about anything of your choosing. I'm also going to be releasing pictures and explanations on how I know what I know. I love you. I'll see you. Goodbye, beautiful human.